This is APX. This is episode three. A man with a boat. Today's episode deals with a different type of subject that I was asked to research when I first came on board here at True Crime Think Tank. Sometimes people find these topics a little tedious. The first topic today is forensic audiology. And this is a person that we hired to verify the recordings that we recovered by searching the materials that John Doe had left behind. Not only the ones that he had given to Jennings, but also materials that were left behind and considered abandoned in a storage unit. There were hundreds of digital recordings that existed, and we were using these recordings to verify parts of John Doe's story. And this is how we went about trying to verify them. This is April. Can you tell me a little about what you do? My name is April Weiss, and I am a, a forensic audio technologist, an audiologist, as well as an audio pathologist. My education is as a speech and behavioral pathologist. Primarily what I do, um, I, I work with children mostly, but I do have a side business working for the court system and analyzing similarities uh, and other anomalies in forensic voice analysis. What is some of the most interesting material that you've analyzed? Oh, I think I think it's all interesting. I I think I've worked on several serial killer cases, um, out primarily uh, out of Ireland, but I've been to California twice to analyze voice messages. Um, they would have actually been answering machine messages that have been left behind by uh, alleged serial killers to determine if the suspect free head was the same person who had left those messages. I've had quite a few cases where messages had been left by someone who's alleged to be a killer. And um, I think those are the most interesting cases for me. Uh, probably one of the most interesting things I do is to break down when someone is faking their voice or, or putting on a voice to determine what they might sound like originally. With this story, one of the things we wanted to do was to analyze the source of the material on our recordings and compare it to some of law enforcement's recordings. Was that something you were able to do? Uh, yes, that is definitely something that I do. When you do this, do you do this in court? Uh, yes, a lot of times it, it, it is for court, but uh, it might take place in an office. Um, I'm deposed in a lot of cases that never quite make it into the court system in a final way. What do you use to compare those things typically? Uh, yeah, so the comparisons that I make um, have changed quite a bit. And one of the programs I've written more recently is to fed out um, artificial intelligence and voices that, are uh, voices that are generated by artificial intelligence. Um, I'm, I'm close to retirement age. So uh, from a technology perspective, uh, I feel like I've kept on the cutting edge, but you know, there's always the possibility that you're wrong. <laughs> 
Um, for me, uh, it's always uh, a series of statistics using um, key performance indicators in the voices to determine if I feel like the person in front of me, who's, for example, I have in his own known sample, matches the uh, indicators of the unknown sample. Then a lot, a lot of times, it's um, uh, it's a bit subjective, a little bit of an art form. Is there a percentage of how likely it is that you would be able to narrow down the comparisons? Oh yes, it's all about probabilities and math. Unfortunately, that's how you have to tell the story of what you're doing. Has there ever been a major misidentification of a suspect as being the person with the voice that you examined that you later realized you had gotten it wrong? I I don't believe there's ever been a major misidentification, but I'm not. Here's the thing about um, this type of voice work is I believe that a lot of times what I'm doing is simply accentuating what the police have ordered up. They know to some degree versus of a stack of evidence pointing to this particular person they're asking me to analyze. I'll say this, most of the work I do is more that depravity. So the comparison um, in some of the cases that you're looking at here, it's about determining, you know, what type of person leaves a message behind? So what did you do for the APX project? Um, in this case, I'm determining whether a known sample matches these samples that are sort of numbered for me. A lot of times I've been asked to do things like to determine um, that it was a husband who was leaving a threatening message for his wife who's gone missing. Those cases are um, they're not final results in court. The more to give the police or law enforcement agencies involved a league and who to go and like look for. And how long did that take? Here, I spent roughly um, 18 hours on four samples. Uh, what I was doing there was to determine if uh, these voices were the people that it was claimed that they were. In that time, how much material did you examine? So the sources I were given... When you say source, is that our material that we provided from the recordings? Um, fortunately, we're all from a, um, the APX project. I guess you guys are the, you guys are the true prime think tank folks. So all the sources were from true prime think tank. Um, I compared 18 hours to uh, known versions of the voices that I was able to get, both from True Crime Think Tank, that I, I did get outside sources of the voices as well. Some of the material was similar. And when you say that you compared it, how many hours did you listen to and how many hours did you compare it to? Um, I compared 18 hours through at least four known hours on two of the different subjects. Um, and when I say that, when I say I compared 18 hours, it doesn't mean that I sat down and my, in one week it was all done. Uh, 18 hours was the amount of material. Uh, we probably have uh, a good, I'd say before I have 120 to 160 hours into this project. 
overall, we were given many more hours than that, but we're still cataloging them. The first step was to find the best quality and the clearest audio pieces that we felt like were suitable for comparison. Did the material for the source and the comparison give you a match? Um, and the material that I was given for the source and the comparison was a, a, a very good match. Um, the statistical probabilities, it, it was high that um, the recordings were real and that these voices were whom it was said that they were. What does that mean? Well, to be frank, it means someone in the auspices of the American government has quite a bit of explaining to do. I believe that's, I believe that's what it means. How confident are you that this voice, meaning 759, is indeed the serial killer that we ask you to compare him to? Well, it's a very high probability in the 90, 90th percentile somewhere. In order to get you something that felt more certain, I would have to sit down and take the voice sample myself and compare that to the num samples. And then I could tell you a very high degree of certainty. But I already feel like, I, I already feel that uh, it's a very high probability that these voices are the same. Last question, and thank you so much for helping us today. Is there any way to date the recordings from a forensic audiology or technical perspective that you know of? And did you try to date these recordings? There's no uh, specific way to date a recording. Um, typically, you're then working with the medium and the uh, meaning how you got it and, and where it came in on. What, when were these recordings made? These recordings, uh, at least a good sample of them, appear to have been made within the last five years or so. Um, that is a contradiction of terms related to uh, a reported date of death for this particular person. Thank you so much for being here today. It was an absolute pleasure, and I hope that I get to work a little more with you in the future. At this point, I want to shift gears and speak with someone who was able to help us with an interesting topic called maritime tracking. Did you know that there are agencies around the globe that know where any particular vessel is at any particular time? And they probably even have photos, videos, and GPS tracking of each vessel. This is Raj. Raj is a consultant for a marine tracking agency called Unknown Element. Hi, Raj. Thanks for being here. Hello. Thank you for letting me come on. Can you tell us who you are and tell us a little bit about what you do? Uh, sure. My name is Raj Adaya. Um, I am a consultant for vessel traffic data, also known as uh, a maritime tracking. Um, I work with different organizations, including the U.S. Coast Guard Navigation Center, the Bureau of Oceans Energy Management, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to um, utilize uh, the Automatic Identification System, or AIS data, in investigations for um, tracking vessels in uh, real time around the globe. Can you tell me more about maritime tracking and how it works? Well, it's a fairly complex um, setup, but each 
uh, each vessel should be is on on uh, uh, equipped on board with uh, a navigation safety device and that uh, transmits and monitors um, the characteristics of the vessels in both. Uh, United States waters, waters of other country, and international waters in real time. Um, it transmits information through a series of receivers, um, information such as location, time, vessel type, speed, length, beam, draft. Uh, we're able to extract quite a bit of raw data, and then that raw data is um, is compared to uh, at times, I'm, uh, we use Universal Transverse Makita uh, UTM time zone, and uh, yeah, we basically overlay all of this information on a map, and we're able to look at it and uh, to tell where the vessel is, uh, roughly where it's going and where it's been. That's um, uh, the primary idea behind uh, maritime tracking. What defines international waters? Uh, the term international waters trends boundary waters. Um, and if I were any of the following types of uh, bodies of water are um, beyond the borders of, of the coastline of, um, of, of a nation, um, there could be oceans or large marine ecosystems, it could be seas, estuaries, uh, rivers, lakes, certain groundwater systems or aquifers, um, wetlands. Uh, it's important to remember that international waters is not, it's not a defined term in terms of how the courts would look at it, particularly in a case like this. Um, it, it essentially refers to any a body of water that might be beyond the territory, legally speaking, of um, any country. It uh, basically used to be referred to as the high seas, and um, the high seas is uh, it falls under the doctrine uh, uh, the doctrine of, of the freedom of the seas. Um, that means that um, it's, it's places on the water where no specific jurisdiction is um, ruling or, or considered to be um, holding in terms of. Uh, legally, you know, uh, states um, have the right to certain things off of the coast. There's actually a convention that was signed in, in the 1950s, which defined uh, the high seas to it defined the high seas to mean all parts of the sea that are not included in the internal waters or territorial sea of of a state. Um, it's actually made in terms of water that it would be considered in a national water, nearly two-thirds of the earth is covered in, an, in what would be termed uh, water. Uh, but 50% of that is, is the high seas. It's just, you know, something that is not really subject to the jurisdiction. And because of that, um, the high seas is they're sort of seen as um, a place where anarchy could occur to some degree. What does it mean when a boat is flagged to a particular country? Um, flagging is a process, it has several meanings. Flagging in is when um, a national registry adds a vessel to it, and flagging out means it's been removed. 
that uh, that means that um, the, the ship is flying under a particular flag, which represents the nationality of the ship. Um, there are very few ships that can go from port to port within the United States that are flagged to the United States that are also cruise ships. Most of them require a foreign port stopover. Um, it's, it's quite important in terms of maritime law. Uh, the flag uh, that a, a ship has as its designation um, is its a very serious uh, part of, of being out on the ocean. Uh, naval flags are considered to be important at sea, and uh, the rules and regulations for flying flags correctly with the appropriate designations are strictly enforced. The flag of the ship, it... It represents who is in control of the ship in terms of what country carries the ship's registration. Based on the ship's flag, the ship must comply with international and maritime law of the registered country in the open sea. And uh, this can be used uh, in a variety of ways when it comes to uh, conflicts on the ocean, including uh, legal conflicts. How did you go about tracking down this particular boat? Uh, the unnamed vessel that we were looking for here, we knew several of the ports of call, and we were able to use dates that John Doe provided with us um, to track ships who had traveled between those particular ports on those particular dates. Um, it was really surprising to find an unnamed vessel. It is not the first time that a government has disguised a vessel in this particular way, but um, where you don't have the name and you might have a sort of a bare minimum description, it can be quite time consuming to track a, a ship like this down. Was there any way to determine what this boat's purpose was? Well, each particular boat um, has a set of equipment on board. So you can kind of tell by the size and the equipment that you can see externally on a, on a ship. Um, for the most part, a, a boat like this, uh, so with the US, typically their boats are almost all uh, river boats. There are a few ocean-going smaller cruise ships. Um, this boat is enormous. It's um, very large. It's larger than um, most, but not all, of current uh, foreign cruise ships that people would see. So we were able to determine that it's meant to carry quite a few people and there seemed to be a large amount of facilities on board. Um, and there were significant countermeasures that had been uh, placed on the ship to keep it off of the radar, um, to keep it from registering uh, its own information with a tracking device, it had been cloaked to a degree in that what the automated system picked up um, was not exactly a, a description of, of the boat in question. And because of that, it, uh, it feeds my interest and I, I wanted to look into it further to determine. There was clearly a, a medical facility on the boat and there was a way to, uh, we observed frequent um, landings um, of different aerial craft on the boat. Um, we were, we've seen something like this when the United States was transporting who I would call prisoners of war and 
that made me want to know who was getting on and off this boat from the perspective from a human rights perspective um that that's where my interest really lied was there anything unusual about this ship oh uh, yes i think the most unusual part was it was a ghost boat clearly a ship that size has a large crew and a large number of people could be on this boat could wasn't designed to carry containers for instance so we set about trying to determine if we could determine who was on this boat oh, that became a very important thing to us very early on um there was a lot of things that were unusual about this boat um it did it has a, just like a randomness about um where this boat was headed and and what it was doing that uh, you don't normally see like boats tend to if you look at patterned long enough in shipping lanes and and like ports and destinations and you can tell what a boat is doing and what industry it might be involved with or if it's just a logistic ship but this boat um it to be clearly wasn't military but it was uh, even though it was a military is uh, it was something uh, do you believe that this ship is being used for nefarious purposes probably i mean the way that we are brought into this we we get this call and they say hey there's this story about this boat and um i think they called him the whistleblower and this is the whistleblower story and his name is john doe and uh, he's saying that uh, we should investigate the ship um and we should try and get the whole nation to uh, give a, a clearer understanding of what's going on on this ship. So that set us off on this investigation. Well, it was actually quite interesting to me how we went about their finest story. And when we got to the end of it all, we were able to, or essentially we were able to track the pings that were made between the programs when we were able to track the ship in the port of call. Where they made a mistake it was it was actually well to be frank it was because they hired international employees so when we sat down and we looked at the manifest which we were able to find not from the ship itself but from the different ports of call we could find who had gone from customs where we were able to make a such a list that we felt like was important in uh, the verification of what John Doe was telling us i think that's a really good start to our conversation. I know that we'll be talking more later and I know that you're on a boat. So I wanted to ask you one more question. I wanted to know, what did you think of what John Doe said was happening on this boat? Well, it's quite strange to have a working relationship with government agencies and to know that the government behind those agencies also has um things that people do not understand about uh what's going on when i was first learning nerton tracking we dealt with uh what was known as the incident on the USS Baton and that ship it was not um it was military based that they were having interrogations of prisoners there and uh, it was uh, part of a scandal related to the central intelligence agency the CIA's black sites and this is shortly after uh, 
9-11 had happened in the United States and it was very serious. Um, but where we uh, come in, as far as unknown element in, in our government contracts come into all of this, I'm not surprised. I'm, you know, I was, a, I was a little surprised that the more I dug, I found there were no intelligence agencies and no law enforcement agencies. But I think probably the most shocking part of it all, um, which you may have started to understand, is that uh, this was uh, some kind of program running involving people. Um, while, while I know your story is about those from the United States, that the people are not only from the United States. And then we look at the story overall and we realize that um, there's no courts involved. There's absolutely no oversight for what's happening. And that was a little surprising to me in many ways that American money was being used by the American government to a program that essentially had no checks and balances to it from what I could see. Um, and again, my interest continues to be purely about human rights on the ocean because it's very important. Um, I don't think people realize how easy it would be to be lost on the ocean. Thank you so much for your time today, and I cannot wait to talk to you again. I find all of this fascinating, and I think maritime law is so complex. Thank you so much, Raj, for helping us track down this part of the story. Uh, you are very welcome, um, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. I'm very excited uh, to work with you. Uh, have a great day. I'm Beth Maurer. This is APX, Season 1, 7, 5, 9. This podcast is brought to you by True Crime Think Tank and True Crime Excess. Our executive producers are Margaret Elizabeth, John Walters, and Jamie B. APX is written and directed by your host, Beth Maurer, with assistance from Jennings John. Editing by Marlo Boyd, Alex Bryant, and Beth Maurer. Special thanks to Miguel Santos, Arson Sergov, Hayden Madison, and Roger Kamini for their assistance with this story. Please consider following us or giving us a rating to help us get noticed in the crowd. For more information after this limited series concludes, check out truecrimexs.com. Donations or sponsorship inquiries for future seasons of APX may be directed to True Crime Excess or to Jennings John. We are also sponsored by the John Doe Family Foundation. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and as always, thank you for listening. them a while and um them being the like the local sheriff's department at this place that i was living at but they catch like three kids and they say there's another three kids involved and they convict um 
All of them are basically misdemeanors. One of them gets a felony. And at some point, the insurance finally settles. Like, I had all this gear and all these different things that we took that I never saw again because, obviously, uh, once they shot me, they just kept going. But it was it was frustrating from the perspective of, like, there was, like, no restitution. didn't really do much jail time. And then I thought about it. And I was like, I don't really know what kind of jail time I would have wanted kids to do anyways or stuff like this. I really want them to be in some kind of program where they um, stop behaving like this. And then I thought about APX and all this stuff. And I was like, that's so ironic that I want to put these children in a program. But that wasn't the biggest thing that came out of that, even though it was terrible. Uh, it was not the only time I've been shot. Um, the biggest thing that came out of it was, so I'm, I've been married a couple of times and this is like, this isn't the first wife and this is not the best wife. This is like a wife between them. And what I discovered during that time was she pops back out of the woodwork. We'd been kind of separated when the shooting happened and she pops back out of the woodwork and she's, um, she had a lot of benefits in life that I did not have financially speaking. And her whole deal with me was kind of weird. We, we were separated because like, I I feel like we genuinely didn't like each other all that much. And so she pops back up and now we're both living in this like little cramped apartment where we've had this home invasion. All my stuff's been taken. The insurance is fighting with me telling me I made it up, even though it's pretty clear that like I didn't shoot myself. Um, Then like she wants to quote, take care of me. And I think this is like probably one of the most important lessons I've ever learned. She didn't actually want to have anything to do with me. But when you get shot, the medication they give you is spot on. Like you get a lot of, of drugs to help you get over that in the first days. Like this this was a situation that required surgery and a lot of antibiotics and a lot of pain killers. So this point in time i didn't know this about her but she really liked the painkillers and that's what that's what she wanted so she comes and she stays with me in this like terrible little apartment and basically ends up stealing all my drugs so the good thing that came out of all that was i knew this was not a person for me and i knew that i would end up getting divorced so i was able to about the third time she stole stuff she would disappear. She would just like go and be gone. And and I got it at first. I was like, you know what? I wouldn't want to be in this little apartment with me, but I didn't ask her to come take care of me or anything. There are other people I could have asked that like, it would have been easier for them. Um, I, I came out one morning and uh, so I was wearing a sling because of the location of the wound. It wasn't in my arm, but it like kept my arm like away from that part of my body and kept me from like, like hurting myself again. And I walked downstairs and you have to understand how rural this place was. Literally the owner of the house and me, like, and maybe one extra car is there. So they're a couple and she got like really sick, um, like right ahead of this happening. And that's kind of how I time all this in my head is because I remember what happened. I walked downstairs one day and, and outside, it wasn't long after the shooting and I was still in recovery. I wasn't going and doing anything work-wise. And there's like, no kidding, 
60 cars in the circle driveway. And there's a note on my door, and it's from the owner of the house, and it says, hey, um, I know it's a lot, there's a lot going on, but I wanted to let you know that she passed away last night. And I was like, oh, my God. So this is the owner of the house's wife. She hadn't been sick for that long. Um, So now when she died, I I started thinking to myself, I can't stay here much longer. Everything was bad enough getting shot there in the driveway, and it was already kind of messing with me. I was like, I can't stay here any longer. So pretty shortly after that, I filed, like, official separation papers, and I I didn't stay there much longer. I found another place. But that was kind of collectively one of the weirdest experiences I had. Um, and I was I was definitely working for I was working for the Acera program on the ATX project during that time. During that time, it's actually like really weird to get divorced again. It's like it's gotta be me, right? And then it takes you a really long time to get over the fact that maybe it isn't you, but maybe you need to change some things up. Next time on APX. Well, I think what you're getting at is like you want to know if I have a list for a seven five nine. I do. Yeah, I had 13 people on this list for a long time. And I'll tell you that when you play this, wherever it goes in your process, you should put together uh, the interviews. Cause the, the, so I finally crossed off some people on this list. And this started with hundreds of people, like hundreds of possibilities. And I narrowed it down based on things he said, and I would bring it in and ask him, ask him to rule things out. And finally, he started doing that. It took years. I ruled out this one Tennessee case because I hired this really unusual investigator and their whole goal was to like look beyond like the mainstream stories. She did a really good job at that and she was able to cross the Tennessee case off my list, but 759 told me a convincing story where I was like, you know what? I almost believe he did this, but I've, now, what's crazy about the Tennessee case is it went to trial, and four people got convicted of crimes related to it that had nothing to do with it. It was a completely different guy altogether, and they had that guy. He was a suspect, but they didn't charge him, and that's just one of the things that happens when you're like exploring these cases. But yeah, you want to know if I got a list? I know, or I think I know, the 11 people the 759 killed, and... I feel very confident that my list is accurate.